So we are uh, transitioning our teaching away from Philippians. We finished Philippians last Sunday to a study in 2 Kings. And some of you say, second what? Well, 2 Kings, here's how you find it. First five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, okay? So you want uh, 2 Kings, go ahead and hold a place there and also hold a place in Romans 1. So 2 Kings 1, Romans 1, the title of our message is The Downfall of a King, you could say of a kingdom. Uh, Some of the men heard this, a form of this message, I shouldn't say a form, they heard this message a couple months ago, but I'm going to give you a little bit more uh, than you heard at that men's breakfast. I will tell you I was inspired by hearing three messages from Dr. Woodhouse, who has written commentaries on 1 and 2 Samuel. I heard him at a pastor's conference uh, teach some of these texts, and I really believe that this is where the Lord has us and where we're going to be. We're going to do scenes from 2 Kings, so we'll be taking some sections, not a verse-by-verse study through the book, but some some famous, uh, well-known stories that you'll be familiar with. And just to give you an idea of where we're headed, this is basically the handoff of the ministry of Elijah to Elisha. So some of you are familiar with that. And uh, that's what we're dealing with in 2 Kings chapter 1, is we're going to deal with the end of Elijah's ministry, and we'll get introduced to Elisha in the coming messages. Now, I've entitled it, The Downfall of a King, as you can see in the graphic. You can think of a kingdom as well. And the reason I'm going to take you to Romans 1 is that Dr. Woodhouse mentioned that he believes that 2 Kings 1 is the Romans 1 of the Old Testament. And what it does is it explains the truth about our troubled world and the truth about our troubled country and gives us a solution to our troubled world and troubled country. Now, you all know, just if you're paying halfway attention, that things have gotten absolutely bizarre in our country and in our world. I can't even keep up with the way that things are happening. It's like the snowball running, running downhill, and I can't believe it's getting faster, but it is. That's where we are. How did we get here, and what is the biblical answer to what ails us? We're going to find it here in the book of 2 Kings chapter 1. Let me just do a couple of opening remarks. First of all, the author, the traditional author of 1 and 2 Kings, which originally in the Hebrew Bible was one book, is Jeremiah. That's the traditional view. There are uh, different speculations on the author. I guess in the end it doesn't really matter. But the traditional view of authorship is Jeremiah. In the Hebrew Bible, 1 and 2 Kings was one book. So it was a seamless book. It got divided into 1 and 2 Kings when the Septuagint was written. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was completed around 250 to 150 B.C., somewhere in there. And when it was completed and the Bible was written then in Greek, which became the dominant language of the world, the Old Testament was being translated into Greek, that's when the book was split So originally, it was one book. And what it chronicles, just from a big picture, is the end of David's reign and handing off the keys to Solomon all the way to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So it covers a big period of time. 
And the setting for 2 Kings is a divided kingdom. So David has died. Solomon rules. The temple gets built and all that. That's all in 1 Kings. And then we have a series of kings that rule in the divided kingdom. Just in case you're not familiar, here's what happens. Ten tribes go up to the north and anchor themselves in northern Israel. And they're called Israel. Two tribes remain in the south near Jerusalem. They're called Judah. You have kings of Judah down in the south and kings of Israel up in the north. Ten tribes and two tribes. And they are a divided nation throughout all of this history that we're going to read about. A divided country, if you will. And the opening verse explains, it says these words, 2 Kings 1.1. Now Moab rebelled. Moab had been brought under subjection when David was ruling. But now uh, Moab rebelled and against Israel, notice, after the death of Ahab. Now Ahab was indeed a fool. And we'll talk about Ahab in a moment. But with that in mind, let's turn over to Romans chapter 1. And let me show you the connection from 2 Kings 1 to Romans chapter 1. So in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel And in verse 16, he gives us the power behind the gospel. The power is the power of the Lord. He says, I'm not ashamed, Romans 1.16, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile or non-Jew. Now, there are many, there are scholars that believe that Romans is targeting the Jewish a believer, and then also the Gentile. There are sweeping truths here. Notice he's talking about the gospel. He says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. There's an internal witness. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, here's the external witness, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God, etc. That's Psalm 19. Even though they knew God, God had given them this witness. And you can think of Israel, but you can think of the whole world. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over or gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. And all God's people said, amen. Now, you all know that where Paul goes next is the result of this idolatry. When you elevate the things of man and idolatry above the truth of God, you end up on a slippery slope and you end up into a place of moral confusion and chaos. See, God's truth is objective. It 
corresponds to reality. But when you are governed by feelings, when you flip things upside down and get away from the truth of God and the God of the Bible and what he's revealed, you end up in moral confusion and chaos. And here we are. We have people asked in Congress, can you define what a woman is? They, they won't define what a woman is, and here's why. It's not that they don't know, but they have, been, they have backed themselves into a moral corner. Because now there are powers at play, and if I say this, I won't please these people, so I got to play dumb, or I got to ask a question when you ask me a question. Why are you asking me? I'm not a... You know, I'm not this, I'm not that. And all of a sudden, we start playing a game. And that's where we are. Now, Romans 1 takes us into the area of homosexuality, but it's gone way beyond that now. Now we have gender confusion. Now we have a guy winning races because he claims to be a woman. The emperor has no clothes, and nobody seems to want to say anything. And we have just gotten to a point where it is utter foolishness. And if you have children right now or grandchildren, you have to be concerned because you're wondering where will this end? How, how far down the hill will the snowball get until it finally just crushes everything? And here's where we are. And it's not just the world. You all know it's infiltrated the church or at least the professing church. And people are so worried about, you know, popularity contests and who's going to say what about me on social media. And all of a sudden, we have lost our collective way. What do we do? How do we explain this and how do we get back to where we need to be? Second Kings, I think, is going to give us some answers. And we've read verse 1 together. Before we do anything further, would you join me just in one more word of prayer? Father, thank you for every soul that has gathered, every heart gathered in this place to worship you in spirit and in truth. We are people of the truth. And yet we realize, Lord, that we were once lost and we were found by the precious grace of Jesus Christ through the gospel. So help us to have both boldness and yet compassion because this is a time of great confusion and how we need the clarity of your truth. Would you give us ears to hear what you would say to us? Because we're the ones reading the scriptures right now and listening to this message. Help us hear what the Spirit would say to us. Let us be a light in our generation. Let us always live our lives with the gospel in mind, the good news that there's hope for everybody. And let us do that with gentleness and respect. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Now the big theme, if you're a note taker, is how and why did Old Testament Israel uh, basically get expelled from their land? Why did 722 B.C. happen when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom? 586 B.C. happened when Nebuchadnezzar uh, brought the people in the southern kingdom into a 70-year captivity. Why did God judge his people? What happened? And how did they get there? In 2 Kings 1, when you read about Ahab at the end of verse 1, we have the death of Ahab. And we'll find out a little bit of background on Ahab in 1 Kings 16. Remember, the original book was, uh, the original two books were one book. 1 Kings 16 tells us a little bit about Ahab. And when you guys hear that name, it's going to ring familiar because Ahab was married to a woman named Jezebel. And here's what it says in 1 Kings 16, 30 through 33. 
And Ahab, the son of Omri, 1 Kings 16, 30, did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what we read about every king in Israel, by the way. There were only a few good kings in the southern kingdom. Every king in the northern kingdom did this. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, but he did it more than all who were before him. This is Ahab. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. You can see that she is the daughter of a pagan king. He's the king of the Sidonians. That was a no-no for kings of Israel to marry outside of the faith, if you will. And the name is revealing, right? Her dad is named after the false god Baal. And she has a name, Jezebel or Bull, which is connected to that as well. And he went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he, Ahab, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, the man that we're going to read about in 2 Kings chapter 1, if you flip over a few chapters, keep going to 1 Kings 22. His name is Ahaziah. He's the son of Ahab and Jezebel. He has a short uh, stint of rulership. He rules for two years in the northern kingdom. And here we get a little backdrop on him. 1 Kings 22, the very last verses, 51 through 53, read this way. Ahaziah... His name means Yahweh sustains or sustained by the Lord. The son of Ahab, and Ahab occupies, Ahab and Jezebel occupy the last seven chapters of 1 Kings. Ahaziah became king over Israel in Samaria, that's the capital, in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now, Jehoshaphat is the king down in the south, and he reigned, Ahaziah reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother. Unfortunately, he didn't have a very good example, did he? His dad built a temple to Baal in the capital city. His mom was a, a Baal worshiper, and she was an evil woman. Ahaziah impacted by both of them. He walked in their ways and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And so he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. Now back to 2 Kings 1. If you want to know what made a good king a good king and a bad king a bad king, it's very simple. Kings were judged on their fidelity and faithfulness to God and his word. Or you could say God and his law. So when a king did right in the sight of the Lord, he followed the Torah, and he did something else. If there were high places built to false gods, Asherah poles, places for Baal to be worshipped, Molech, whoever it may be, he tore those down. He got the idolatry out of the country, and by doing so, honored the Lord, who said, you shall have no other gods before me, and then God would bless the nation. Now, some kings kind of did a halfway job. They got rid of some stuff and not other stuff, but a good king was one who honored the Lord and his law and then eradicated false worship from the land, and that brought God's blessing. Now, if you're taking notes, we're back in 2 Kings 1-2, and we have the accident or the fall. This is a heading, if you're taking notes, you could just call this the fall. 
The date is around 850 B.C., maybe about 853 to 850 B.C. We're in the royal city of Samaria, the northern capital, and Ahaziah, king, fell through the lattice in his upper chamber. So in this day, what would happen is all the dwellings were one-story dwellings, but if you had a palace or you were very well-to-do, you might have a second level of your home. And if you had a second level, what they would do is they would put lattice around story number two for shade, airflow, and that kind of thing. And so we don't know really what happened other than Ahaziah woke up one morning, maybe didn't have enough coffee, whatever it may be. He leaned on the lattice and it gave way. I don't know if it got signed off by an inspector or what. But anyway, it gave way and Ahaziah fell. And reading between the lines, he fell about a story down to the first level. And the, if you have the New Living Translation, it basically says that he was severely injured as a result of the fall. Maybe internal injuries, I don't know. But he lay in a, basically a sick or a deathbed as a result of the fall. So he's in the upper chamber. The lattice gives way, uh, which is in Samaria, he beca- and he became ill. So he fell And he became ill or he was severely wounded. And so here's what he does. He sent messengers and said to them, you know, advisors to the king, go inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. It's possible that he might be saying something like, how can I get better or will I get better? But who does he go to? He goes to the false god Baal. Now, he tells the uh, advisors to go to Ekron, which is 40 miles from where we are on the map right now. Now, we've just read that there was a place, a palace for Baal in Samaria, right in his capital. Why didn't he go there? Or why didn't he send the messengers there? We don't know for sure. It's possible that this place, Ekron, was known for divination and divine healings. It was kind of maybe a place that people would go to experience healing. Maybe that's what he was looking to do. Uh, He sent basically his advisors all the way into Philistine territory, into one of the capital cities. And ironically, Ekron means a barren place. And that's where he wanted them to go. There are other scholars who would say that perhaps he did this because he was concerned that if people found out he was severely injured, they would form a coup. You know, if a king was in in weakness and on a deathbed, others might try to take his throne from him. And so that's possible too. Maybe he was trying to get, you know, word from out of the area. But either way, he goes to this false god. His fall is a picture of fallen mankind. In Genesis 3, we call Genesis 3 the fall chapter. How did our first parents fall? Well, the serpent came into the garden, the false god, if you will, the one behind idolatry. And he lied to our first parents. And he got Eve to believe his word rather than God's word. And Eve bought it and they bit into the forbidden fruit, and mankind fell. Ahaziah's fall is kind of a picture of the fall of mankind. We fall because sin brings death. We get separated from God, and there's really only one remedy. And the accident here is indicative of the fall of all mankind. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. 
Perhaps God is behind the fall. He has uh, perhaps allowed this, uh, this, this uh, thing to give way in order to get his attention or to judge him. Uh, that may be the case. But Ahaziah now calls out to these messengers and he says, I want you to go to this God of Ekron and see if I'll get better. And that God is called Baal, Baal Zebub. Some people pronounce it Baal. But Baal is the false god. Often he gets a name of where he's located regionally. So, but in this case, Baal Zebub is actually a name which means Lord of the Flies. I want you to go and inquire of Beelzebub, that means Lord of the Flies. Now, I have great issues with flies. I don't know if you guys do, but yesterday I was cooking dinner, and three flies, the unholy trinity, came in (laughs) to my home. And I picked up my mother's tendency. Life stops when flies are in the home. They must be destroyed. So I was on a search and destroy mission, and I, I take deep breaths, and if a flies come anywhere near my food, I'm like, ah, you can't flies. Why did you make flies, oh Lord? Well, anyway, this God is the Lord of the flies. Now, why would you ever go to the Lord of flies for anything? Well, Here's an interesting fact. Jewish writers took Beelzebub and changed it to Beelzebul, uh, apparently intentionally, which means Lord of the Dung. We might say Lord of the Poop. Now, they did this sarcastically, and this actually comes up in Jesus' ministry where they attribute his miracles to this demon or Satan himself, which was a total blasphemy against Jesus. But the Jewish writers renamed this God to the Lord of the Dung. And let me just say, if you go to get answers from the Lord of the Flies or the Lord of the Dung, I think you can fill in the blanks as to what kind of answers you may end up with. I'll let you walk that out. Why would this king ever do such a thing? Why would he go and inquire of Baal? Well, here's what's going to happen. But the angel of the Lord, verse 3, 2 Kings 1, we don't know if that's Jesus in the Old Testament or maybe we might say a normal angel, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, now we see Elijah, his name means Yahweh is God, He's the Tishbite. And the angel says, Arise and go to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, here's the question. Scene to the question. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you, go, you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, the, the question I think that sits before us is this. Why, why would he do this? Uh, we'll get to that, into that in a second, but... You know, the first thing that we do when something happens in our lives is revealing about us. When we encounter an emergency, when something happens, what's the first plan? What's the first door we push on? Do we go to God or do we go elsewhere? Do we run down all of our so-called plans and then finally push on the door of prayer? That's something we all got to wrestle with, right? Well, this is what Ahaziah knew, so he sends the team out and then... 
intercepted by Elijah, he says, basically, is it because there's no true God that you've gone to this false God? And the question is meant to sit, not only before the king, but before us. Why do we go outside of the true God? Why do we seek answers in that which is false and barren and bankrupt? But look, we're all tempted to do it, right? And so here's what the Bible says. This is Psalm 14. Keep this message now in mind with these words. The fool has said in his heart, Psalm 14, 1, there's no God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name or call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. See, Psalm 14 is not just about the atheists. We all, you know, have heard Psalm 14, 1. The fool in his, has said in his heart, there's no God, and we immediately think of the atheists. And it's certainly applicable to the atheist. But in Psalm 14, the address may more be to the person who, in a time when God's trying to get their attention, should cry out to God, but says in their heart, no, there's no true God. I'll go to this God instead. See, in the ancient world, atheism wasn't the issue. It was what God would you call upon in your moment of need? To whom would you look? And Psalm 14 might be after that or looking towards that. What would Ahaziah do? And why is the question posed in this way? Because Ahaziah should have known better. Less than 20 years before this happens, there was a contest on a mountain called Mount Carmel. The record is a little bit back in our Bibles in 1 Kings chapter 18. So there's all kinds of idol worshiper happening, idol worship happening under Ahab and Jezebel. And uh, Elijah ends up confronting them, and he proposes a contest. But if you take a look with me, this will set the backdrop. It's very important. Elijah 18.21 of 1 Kings, he comes near the people and says, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, 1 Kings 18.21, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put uh, no fire under it. I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put fire under it. Then you call in the name of your God, I will call in the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And the people said, yeah, that's a great idea. And so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it uh, first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God and put no fire under it. So they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until, e until noon. Oh, Baal, they said, answer us. Baal, Baal, Baal. Baal us out of this one, oh, Baal. But there was no voice. No one answered. 
They leaped about the altar which they had made. Maybe if we jump up and down, he'll answer. And it came about at noon that Elijah, proving that sarcasm is biblical, (laughs) mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he's a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside, or he's on a journey, or maybe he's on vacation, or perhaps he's asleep. If you have the ESV, it says maybe he's relieving himself. And I'm not kidding. It's because the Hebrew allows for that. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's napping. Maybe he's on the toilet. And he needs to be awakened. So, so just call out louder. Maybe he doesn't hear you. Now, this does give a place for biblical sarcasm. Uh, and all God's people said, yes. And looking for a verse to support my gift of sarcasm. <laughs> just be careful. <laughs> This is a strategic moment, and it deserves sarcasm. And so uh, Elijah said to all the people, so no one answered. Verse 30, Elijah said to the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which, he, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And so with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. He arranged the wood and cut the oxen pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. He said, do it. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. Now, Elijah's got some faith, does he not? You could hear some silent prayers going up. All right, Lord, I'm really stepping out here. I'm going to drench everything just to make this doubly, you know, effective. And at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned, key phrase, their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And all God's people said, yeah. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, not let one of them escape. And so they seized them, and Elijah brought them to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Is it because there is no God in Israel, Ahaziah? Now this happened during the reign of his mom and dad. And it's probably chronology safe to say no more than 20 years before Ahaziah falls through the lattice that this Mount Carmel contest occurred. Either Ahaziah was a young man, he may have been there, there is absolutely no doubt that he's heard about what happened here, amen? I think everybody in Israel knew this story extremely well. In other words, Ahaziah was inexcusable. The visible attributes of God were clearly seen within and without. He was without excuse. Why, oh why, would he ever call upon a false god? He knew better. 
The contest was famously talked about, no doubt, in Israel. Everybody knew the story. The king knew the story. Why would he go to Baal? Because his heart had become hardened. Because idolatry is slippery. Because we can be easily deceived. Maybe he was backed into a corner. Maybe he had opened the door to Baal and now he didn't know how to get out. I don't know all the dynamics, but I think you can fill in the blanks. And now Elijah sends the message. Here's the message, 2 Kings 1.4. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you want to hear from the true God? Here it is. You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And if you're taking notes, that will sound very familiar because those are the words of Genesis chapter 3. In the day you eat thereof of that tree, I told you not to eat of, you will surely die. Ahaziah falls. He believes the lie. And he's going to die. And instead of going to the God who could actually give him life, he goes to the false God. This is Ezekiel 33, 14 through 17. When I, the Lord, say to the wicked, you will surely die. Ezekiel 33, 14. And he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he will surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness. He will surely live. Yet your fellow citizens say, the way of the Lord is not right, when it is their own way that is not right. Boy, how relevant is that. Basically, God says to Ezekiel, your job as a prophet is to tell the truth. And if a person hears the truth and repents, They'll live. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No delight in it. Why, oh why, Israel, will you die? Turn that you may live. This is the job of the prophet. He calls upon the people to turn back to the Lord. And Ahaziah has a moment. He's in crisis. He's on his deathbed. And the message has come. And the, and the messengers returned to the king and, sa- and he said to them, why have you returned? It should have taken longer. Why are you back so soon is, is the idea. And they said to him, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who, uh, who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you've gone up but you shall surely die. Now, the king got the message much quicker than he expected. And the message wasn't fun. And I'm sure it was hard to deliver if you're a messenger, king. We got intercepted by this prophet. And here's the message he gave. And the king said, gulp? What kind of man or what sort of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? What did he look like? And they said, He was a hairy man. Now this gives hope to all hairy men. Maybe God has a prophetic ministry for you. I don't know. But if you're hairy, take refuge in this. Elijah was a hairy man. And all God's men said, yeah. Anyway. (laughs) He was a hairy man with a huge cowboy belt buckle. That's a loose translation. Actually, he had 
a leather girdle bound about his loins. And the king said, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. Rats, double rats, foiled again. You see, Ahaziah knew who Elijah was. And in the description, how is it that the messengers didn't know immediately it was Elijah? Why didn't they just go in and say to the king, Elijah met us? Had Elijah disappeared because the nation had largely rejected God? I don't know for sure, but Ahaziah knows who he is. And it tells you that Ahaziah has been under some conviction for a while. He knows the truth. He is not ignorant to the truth, but he has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1. And so the message lands hard. And he knows that the prophet has spoken. And he knows Elijah is a prophet of the Lord. All you got to do is look back to 1 Kings 18 and the contest. It's undeniable. What will the king do? If you're taking notes, just put ahead of verse 9, scene 4, the fool. The king sent to him a captain of 50. Now not messengers, but his military with his 50. He calls basically a military unit or a platoon to him and sends them to Elijah's location. The captain went up to him and behold, he, Elijah, was sitting on the top of the hill. Literally in Hebrew, it's the mountain. And many believe he's up on Mount Carmel where all the 1 Kings 18 stuff occurred. And the captain said to Elijah, O man of God, maybe he said it with some cynicism. The king says, come down. Now Elijah's up on the mount. The captain comes. He's got this platoon with him, 50 soldiers plus the captain. O man of God, (laughs) come down. Now, what was he trying to accomplish by sending soldiers instead of messengers? In the ancient world, uh, they believed that if you could... Uh, either take power over a messenger who spoke like a curse uh, or a negative word, or you could kill the messenger, you could remove the curse from your life. And this is likely what Ahaziah is thinking. If I take Elijah as my prisoner and kill him, I will remove the word that has been spoken over my life and I'll live. Now, this pattern has been followed for 2,000 years of church history where people will hear the truth of God or the gospel. They don't like it. So what do they do? They try to kill the messenger. We experienced this through COVID. We saw all the crazy stuff in Canada. But worldwide, we have persecution happening to the church in communist-dominated countries. And here, even in the States, there's forms of persecution with social media and stuff like that. So... This has been going on for a long time, and this is what Ahaziah is thinking. He could have said, send Elijah to come to me and pray over me. I'm going to repent of my sin, because I know Baal's false, and that's been proven. And I'll repent, and perhaps God will have mercy, but he doesn't do that. He sends these soldiers instead. And Elijah answers the captain of the 50 and says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And if you were watching a movie of this, this would be a ugly scene. The fire of God, the wrath of God, if you will, is revealed from heaven. And this whole military unit is fried at the bottom of the hill, destroyed by the wrath of God. Because God 
is holy. Now, get this. Baal was supposed to be the god of thunder and lightning. If you read a little backdrop on Baal, archaeologists have discovered little statues of Baal, and he's got a club in one hand and a lightning bolt in the other. And they said of Baal that he was the god, small g, that rode on the clouds and brought the rains and the, and the storm and the lightning. And this is a little bit of irony in your Bible where God is saying, Baal doesn't control that stuff. I do. Baal also means master of the house. But here, I think a clear message that God is holy and he's the one in control of all of this. By the way, the Bible does say that Jesus is coming again in flaming fire in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. And it says that he will destroy the Antichrist with the brightness of his coming. And so now the place where the fire had come to consume the sacrifice now consumes this first military unit. Now somehow word got to the king, to Ahaziah, that this had happened what do you think he'll do, verse 11? So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. This is an order. Now, did he have to walk past some fried corpses that perhaps were still smoking? Probably. Do you remember in Shrek that Amazingly theological movie. I'm not making a recommendation to watch it, but the, remember the little king who wants the dragon to be slayed and Shrek ends up being the guy? He pronounces this from his little platform. Some of you may have to die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. That's Ahaziah. Go, 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 tell him to come down. <laughs> this guy's on his deathbed. Who's he commanding? Tell him to, so, you know, you're a good military captain and you say, get down here, the king wants you. And Elijah said to them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire came down, the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. I count 102 dead soldiers. The wrath of God revealed. Now, where will this end? You have to say, what madness is this? What a fool the king is. He did it again? I count two strikes, and you know what happens when you get three. And so he again sent the captive of a third 50 with his 50. Uh, bad news. Uh, <laughs> here, your compadres, uh, they're no longer here, but uh, I've got a job for you, and I'm sure it'll be different this time. And when the third captain of the 50 went up, now this is a smart dude. He came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, Oh, man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. The king was defiant, but this captain was humble. For God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And it is never too late to humble yourself under his mighty hand. If you have been burned by idolatry, you've gone the wrong way, and you still have breath in your lungs, you still have time. 
to call on his holy name. Behold, fire came down from heaven, consuming the first two captains of the 50, verse 14, with their 50s. But now, let my life be precious in your sight. I think the third captain has just given us an insight into what will heal our land and its humility. And it seems so simple, doesn't it? But it is our pride that gets us in trouble. And so the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. And you can see the angel of the Lord has been there, apparently, or has appeared again. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Then he said to him, thus says the Lord. So now Elijah has appeared at the bedside of the the wounded king. Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up the third time in the text, but you shall surely die. Elijah arrived at the king's bedside. He was dying, and the king stayed hardened in his sin. And the death pronouncement comes. And so, scene six, right before verse 17, he died. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Ahaziah died, 17, according to the word of the Lord, which always comes to pass, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram, this is Ahaziah's younger brother. Uh, You can reference uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, there's the king of Judah. It appears to be some sort of co-regency, but a dynasty ends because Ahaziah doesn't have a child to hand off the throne to. And now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? This is a sad story. It's the downfall of a king and a kingdom. And the question is, how could the story be different? How could it have changed? What could Ahaziah have done as a leader of a nation to change things? All the way to Luke 9, and we're done. And I'm going to ask the worship team if you can start making your way up here. Luke chapter 9. So Jesus is winding down his earthly ministry. He's come on the scene. Luke 9, Dr. Luke records these words. This is 9.51, Luke 9.51. It came about when the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, Luke 9, 51, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, that is, to face the cross. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of what? The Samaritans. Now, we're talking about the same region now uh, of our account in 2 Kings. And they were going to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. They apparently were not hospitable. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Hey, in Sabbath school, we just read about Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. Called fire down against the, you know, those who opposed God. Lord. We could burn half the village. Maybe that'll wake up the rest of the village. How many of you have ever done this in freeway traffic? You wish you could call fire down? No? 
It's only me. Never mind. <laughs> so they have this account in their minds. Lord, let's do what Elijah did. Let's, let's cause a little ruckus here. These people aren't hospitable to you or to your gospel. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, you may have brackets in your Bible because this is in one manuscript family and not in another. But he does rebuke them, so that tells you he's not happy with what they've said. And this is what another version manuscript family says. He said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, did not come to destroy men's lives, but to what? But to save them. And then he went on to another village. Now, on another mountain, not Mount Carmel, but a mountain called Mount Moriah, Jesus takes the wrath of God in our place. And if you will, the fire comes down on another mountain or hill, and Jesus takes the wrath of God for us because God so loves us, all of us who have been wayward, all of us who have let idols into our lives in one way or the other. We've all sinned. And when Jesus is dying on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me all alone? And the fire of the wrath of Almighty God comes down on Jesus. Signs of like the sky growing dark and the earth quaking are signs of judgment as Jesus pays the price for my sin. He didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And we have a window right now in, his, in the history of mankind where the gospel goes out and we preach good news to Jew and Gentile. The reason that the gospel got to our shores is because people took that seriously and preached the hope that there's a God that loves us even though he is holy. You know, God is holier than we might imagine. And our sin is more serious than we may think. But I think something else, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And love and justice intersect at the cross. And we have a window. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he comes again, this world is going to be judged by fire. That's just the truth of Scripture. But God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants all men to repent. Because he's fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And he's given evidence of this by raising Jesus from the dead. Amen? So I know this room is filled with a lot of people who have called upon the name of the Lord and you're in Christ and praise the Lord. And for you, this may just be some further answers and more motivation to preach the gospel. But if you don't know the Lord or you've let idolatry into your life, then my encouragement to you would be return to the living God. Would you bow with me, Father? Thank you for this wonderful congregation. Such a great heart. Um, for the gospel, so many things get done from this church in Corona that many may not even be aware of, but ministry is happening all over the world coming from this place that you have set apart. And we know in one sense we're nothing special, Lord, 
but you have made us more than conquerors and you've been faithful to your word. And I'm so grateful for the partnership we share in this fellowship in the gospel. Bless each and every warrior, saint. Strengthen them with resolve and passion for the good news of Christ. Help us to have the right spirit as we interact with folks. Help us never forget how radically you saved us. But we also know, Lord, that there's a window. There's a time when time is going to be up. And the way things look, (laughs) we don't know how close it may be. So I'm just asking that you would steal our hearts with strength to keep pressing on. Now, if you're not a, a Christian... This would be a wonderful time to call upon the name of the Lord and know that he entered time and space to save you. He was on a saving mission. That's how much he loves you. He's so holy, he's going to judge sin, but he's so loving. He took the judgment for you. Trust him right now. You don't have to have perfect words, but the Bible calls upon us to repent. That means turn away from our sin, our pattern of sin, and trust Jesus. Make him your king. Say, Lord, I want to build your kingdom. I turn away from my sin. Pray it right now if it's you. If you're a prodigal and you've been wandering and the way of the world has saturated your life to such a degree that you're confused and maybe you just don't know which way to turn, it's always, the best way to turn is always back to God. He'll renew your heart again. Thank you, Father. We just want to end this by saying we love you. Thank you for loving us first.